Luis is next with his questions, Tom. Go ahead, Luis. Thank you. Hi, Tom. Hi, everybody. Well, my hi, question, Luis. my first question, hi, Tom. It's uh, really related to uh, what Titi was asking. So it's called choices with mixed results. So you often say, Tom, that learning from our, our choices is the most important thing and not trying to know what the right choice could be. Make the choice and then watch the results, you say. But sometimes the results are pretty mixed. For example, if I quit a job or leave an organization that I was a member of for many years, I could find myself being more authentic, happier, willing to and wanting to help others. Since I released a big chunk of my self-image, and the resentment that comes with faking it for that uh, long time. But many people could disagree with my choice. People or even friends could turn away from me because they don't approve of the different path that I wanted to take. They might think it is selfish due to the important role that I could have played in that organization, although frankly, from my point of view, it defied the purpose to play that role if I didn't see a path to grow and evolve the quality of my consciousness. So yeah, I could have made some people angry or, or uncomfortable or sad. So how to balance or assess the effect of my choice regarding the entropy reduced in my life and the one that apparently raised uh, or seemed to raise in others? Well, when you make your choices, that's a that's kind of a calculation that you need to make. Yeah. You say, well, okay, what, what are the upsides and what's the downsides for me to make this choice? So you change careers. You do a major career change. Mm -hmm. Leave a place where you feel very, you know, stultified. You can't, you know, a very low growth environment and you want to move to a higher growth environment and you realize it's going to upset some people that you do that. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to consider those people. You have to say, well, all right, I'm going to I'm going to upset a bunch of people, and how is that going to work out? What's that actually going to do to them? You know, how is my choice going to affect them and their choices? Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we can take a couple of of examples at opposite ends. Let's say one of the persons that's affects is your family. Let's mm -hmm. say you have a wife and six kids, and mm -hmm. You know, and you make a pretty good income and they're all doing all right. But when you decide to quit your your really high paying job for something that pays only a tenth as much, mm -hmm. um, how is it going to impact that wife and your 10 children? Well, now that's something you have to consider because they're part of your responsibility. So you can't just say, well, I want to quit. So I am and everybody else is going to have to lump it. That would be very self-centered. But let's say it's on the opposite extreme and it's just your friends who don't appreciate your viewpoint and where it is you're coming from. Well, what's it going to do to them? What, what choices is it going to, to push them towards? Well, none, really. They have their own lives, their own careers, their own families and things. It's not really going to put pressure on them to do anything at all. What it does do is it gives them an opportunity to grow up and maybe see a little picture or maybe just continue to, to care for you or that friendship, no matter what it is that you do, because it's not really about, you know, if, if, if your friendship was only based on the role you played at work, then it wasn't really a friendship to begin with. It was something that was just 
played out intellectually. And it's probably better for that to go away because it really wasn't based on anything substantial. So it gives them an opportunity to see something and maybe grow from it. They may say, well, you know, Lewis, uh, uh, you know, left the job for, let's say, ethical reasons. They didn't like his job because they were always asking him to do something that was unethical or marginally ethical or something like that. Maybe I should think about that. You know, my job makes, you know, ask me to do things that are kind of marginal too. Should I leave it or not? And why? So you may end up causing them to consider other issues, just like you did, to see things. And they may come to the opposite conclusion. They may say, well, yeah, you know, I don't really like that so much, but it's better than the alternative. And they decide it's better than the alternative, so they just keep doing it. And if that's their choice, then that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be friends with them. That's just their choice. And, you know, so it may give them some choices that will help them grow up. And if they make that choice badly, you're going to say, well, you know, if he's going to do that, then he probably thinks I'm not very ethical either because I'm still in that situation. So, you know, I can't be friends with him. Well, that's just they made a poor choice. They made an ego-based choice based on an assumption that probably wasn't true. Well, when you make ego choices based on assumptions that aren't true, you usually end up in a worse place than you were before. Well, they would, and the worst place would be that you're not friends anymore. So they, they lose that. And what you lose is a friend who really had a lot of ego and made bad choices, which is not such a bad thing. <laughs> you know, you'd <laughs> like your friends to be good people that help pull you up, not people that drag you down. So it works out good for everybody. So, yeah, you can't make everybody happy all the time. You have to do what you think is right. You have to take into consideration your responsibilities. And you have to look and see how it's going to affect other people. And if you look at all of that and say, well, the best thing to do is just, you know, leave this job and do something else. And, okay, my family's on board with it because they don't like me being grumpy all the time anyway. I'll be a much better, more attentive father, more attentive husband, and so on if I'm not in this high-pressure spot. Then my family's all on board that we're going to have to stop taking, uh, you know, vacations to Alcapulco for, you know, for a month every uh, every year. You know, that we're going to have to not do those kinds of things. So, you know, if they're on board with it, then your friends and other people, they just need to decide whether their friendship with you is more important than other issues. Yeah. And if it is, then they won't care what you do. Matter of fact, they'll probably be very interested. How's that work out for you? <laughs> you know, how's that working out? And, uh, you know, that shouldn't be a problem. If it is a problem, then they really weren't very good friends anyway. The relationship wasn't the key thing. It was something else. They're upset about that now they don't have your leverage at the, at the workplace that they used to have. You know, it's some other kind of thing going on. It has nothing to do with friendship. It has to do with other issues. And, well, that's their choice. And if they make those choices, then you have to let them go their own way, however that is. So then you don't worry too much about that. That's their problem. That's their choice to make. 
Thank you. My second question will be uh, regarding if there's such a thing as no intent. And mainly uh, because of this, uh, when talking about meditation in your book, you say something along these lines, have absolutely no expectations and no specific goals. In Zen meditation, for example, you hear such sayings as walk aimlessly, just follow your breath, nothing else. Is a point consciousness meditation a practice of no intent or just no goals and expectations? If there is a no intent approach or state as individuated consciousness, what is the purpose or value of it? Well, it can be some of each. Yes, you're, you should start out going into a meditation with just the idea of dropping all your thoughts, right? It's a place of being thoughtless. Mm-hmm. And for that, there should be no special intents in that process because you just want to let go of your physical sense data. Mm-hmm. Primarily, that's the key. You want to stop processing physical sense data. Or at least, you know, you can't necessarily not hear the telephone ring or not hear the horn honking, but you cannot process it. When you hear it, you just ignore it. It's just there. It's part of background noise that has no meaning, no action for you to, to deal with it. It just, it just is and it's easy to let it go. So in that case, you want to be empty. You don't want to be working on something. Okay. And Once you get there, though, okay, now I'm in point consciousness. No thoughts. Now you may have something that you'd like to do, like we just discussed with Titi. You may want to go to somebody and connect with them, make a connection with that person, give them some love and some and some uh, you know energy to help them feel positive toward their life. So that then can be an intention, but. It's different in the sense that if you have that intention to begin with, okay, I'm going to meditate to help this person, and you're thinking about that person and what you're going to say to them and what you'd like to do and thinking about their problem, you'll probably not get to point consciousness because you're busy thinking about things. You haven't got to the thoughtless space. So the 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 no intention is the first part of the trip, and then you're there, and you you then take your intellect and say well do i have any sense data am i processing anything and if you're the you know just consciousness floating in the void the answer is no i really not paying any attention to any of that stuff well then you can say well now what do i want to do actually you it'd be good to start out thinking about the things you wanted to do before you started then set them aside get the point consciousness now pick them back up again and and go execute, go do those things, whether you want to go out of body, whether you want to heal, whether you want to remote view, whatever it is you want to do, go daddy out of the database, you can do it at that point. So you need kind of both processes. So the, the getting rid of the sense data needs an empty mind process. But after you're there and you recognize that you're there, then you can have intentions to collect data and do things. So that's why I say that the point consciousness 
is like the doorway. But first you have to get in front of the door. <laughs> if you don't get in front of the door, you can't open it, right? So that process requires you being empty to get in front of the door. So I see it as two different sorts of things that you, you set it all aside and you're not really interest, you're not really thinking about that person you're going to meet or the data you're going to get or none of that. All that's gone. You're just empty and you get there. Then once you're there and recognize it, then now you can do whatever you want to do. But again, it needs to be most of your direction and your intents to be powerful need to come from the intuitive space, not from the intellectual space. So if you get to that point and it's like, well, now what do I want to do? And your intellect starts thinking on all the things you might be able to do. That's going to be a kind of a weak thing. If you then decide, all right, I'm going to do this. Now you have to take this, that thing you're going to do, move that from the intellectual space down to the intuitive space and then work with it at the intuitive space. So the intellectual space is good for figuring out what to do next, but it's not very good for doing what comes next. Mm-hmm. You see? And the intellectual space is not good for getting to the door in the first place, you know, getting to that point consciousness. The intellectual space will ruin that. But it doesn't mean that while you're in working in intuitive space, you can't go into that intellectual space and make a choice. And then get back into the intuitive space. Getting back and forth between the intuitive and intellectual space is something you should learn. And eventually, it becomes something you do automatically. You don't really even notice the transition. The intellect and the intuition just work together such that when you're doing things that need to be done from an intuitive space, the intellect just sits down and is quiet and lets you work. And as soon as you need to make choices, and do some assessments and do a little analysis about, you know, how you should approach something else. Well, the intellect jumps right in, does that, and then sits down and be quiet. And the, and the intuitive space is still sitting there on hold, ready to pick it up and go forward. So eventually you learn to work with both of those, and they learn to work together. In the beginning, it's often an either, you know, one or the other. You're either in the intuitive space and you're not in the intellectual space at all because if you let that intellectual space come in, it just dominates. You know, it just overruns the intuitive space and wants to take over. And that's the problem many people have. So it's like they ban the intellectual space and have to stay in the intuitive or vice versa. The intuitive is just blown away and they're stuck with the intellectual space. That's kind of the typical person because we – in our culture, tend to be very unbalanced that way. Mm-hmm. So we can jump between them, but eventually it's not a matter of jumping back and forth between them. It's a matter of both of them know what they do best and know what they mess up, what they don't do very well, and mm-hmm. they just do it as needed without you having to do anything. Thank you. That was really uh, clarifying. Good. Yeah, it can get a little confusing. Thank you, Louise. Thank you. Uh, Next, we have Arlette. If you are ready for your question, Arlette. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Hello, Tom. I want to ask uh, how we love ourselves more. 
And how can we improve our self-esteem? Do you have any suggestions? Okay, what was the first question? I got a lot of static while you were speaking. Yes, it is how can we love ourselves more? Ah, okay, and how can we build better self-esteem? So it's having a more positive attitude toward, our, toward ourselves. Yes. yes, that's a very, very important thing. If you don't like yourself, if you're negative towards yourself, then that creates a host of other problems because that's basically a fear of not being adequate, not being good enough, not being, you know, valuable, having little value. You have all this negative attitudes towards yourself. And if you have that, then it's very difficult for you to to grow or to be. Every time you reach out to, to do something or whatever, you kind of stop and you halt yourself. You get in the way and say, oh, well, I probably couldn't do that. Oh, that probably wouldn't work anyway. No, there's no point going there. you know. And if you convince yourself of that, then it's hard to get anywhere because you feel so negative about yourself. So you have to start with why do you feel negative about yourself? What is it? Why do I feel that negativity? Where did that come from? And that's often helpful for people who feel negative about themselves because they will find out it didn't really come from you. It's not that you were just born feeling negative about yourself. It came from your experiences. And usually as a young child, you were put down a lot. You were looked over. You were you know, treated as though you were insignificant, um, that sort of thing. And when you get treated that way as a child, you begin to believe that that's because that's what you are, that you are insignificant. That's why you get treated like that. And now you can go up and, you know, 50 years later, you still have that same feeling that you had when you were six years old or eight or 10 or whenever. So understanding where did that come from? Where did I, where did I learn to feel that I really wasn't that important or that significant? or that valued, and then go back and say, that doesn't have anything to do with me. That was somebody else's opinion. That was somebody else's ego, somebody else's fear, somebody else's challenge to grow up. And because they had all that fear and ego, they ended up, you know, giving me this sense of inferiority, of being negative. And then just disown it and say, well, that's not me. That was them. That then will give you an ability to start doing things differently. Whenever you feel yourself kind of standing back or holding back or not just presenting yourself because you're feeling kind of nervous and inadequate, in the beginning, you're just going to have to force yourself to do it anyway. Let's say you are shy about meeting new people because you figure that they won't like you or they won't think you very much or they'll think little of you or something like that. Once you come to the conclusion that that what really is not you, that's just an idea of you that you took on from somebody else and that you are going to be a person who does have value and does have significance and does have something important to say. And then just, even though you feel like, oh, should I say that or keep it to myself? Say it. Step up. Do it. 
and feel like this, that whether they like or not who and what you are, you're going to be who and what you are. And if they don't like it, that's going to be their issue. It's not going to be you, you are the, of the fault of everything. <laughs> See, that's the negative thing. If somebody doesn't like me, oh, it's because I wasn't adequate or I didn't do it right. You have to realize if somebody doesn't like you, it's just because that's them. It's the way they feel. Their choice not to like you. Don't take that on as, as a failure for you. So when you realize that everybody else's reaction, it's not really about you. It's about them. How they react to you is mostly about what's inside of them. Their own ego, their own needs, their own inse- you know insecurities. That's why they act the way they do. Many people try to make themselves feel more valued and, and more capable by putting other people down. They, they feel insecure, but they feel better if they can put other people down. You're not as good as me. You don't know as much as I do. You know, da, da, da. Just by putting other people down makes them feel better. Well, if somebody puts you down, you start, you blame yourself. Oh, I guess I didn't do that very well. You see, it's not you again. You have to let other people, if they're going to be negative to you, realize that that's them, not you. You just be you. You be authentic. If you have an idea or a thought or a suggestion or something to say, just say it. And let it go out there. And if they don't like it, well, that's their issue. You've given them something to think about. And if they turn out to be negative people that just like putting others down, well, then you really don't need them as friends. You don't need them to be around you. It's good that they go someplace else or that you go someplace else. So make an intention to be authentic, to speak your mind, to say what you say. To tell people how you feel. If they say something and it hurts your feelings, tell them. Don't tell them you shouldn't have said that. Tell them, this is how I feel because of what you said. You see? So if it's about your feelings, just tell them, this is how I feel. And if they try to put you down and say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Well, then you can say, you cannot tell me you know, how I feel. I feel how I feel. I'm just telling you, this is my feeling. And then you'll find out what they're made of. Because if they're made of stuff that's insecure and, and you know, low quality, then they'll tell you, oh, it's all your fault. See? And people who are like that, you really don't need to be around them. Minimize your time with them. So... Look and see why it is you feel insecure. I'm almost, I'm very sure you'll find out it's the way you were treated when you were young. Convince yourself, tell yourself, that's not me. That was somebody else's problem. Somebody else's low quality of consciousness washed over me and I came to the wrong conclusion. I came to the conclusion it was my fault. It's not. I'm going to be authentic. I'm just going to tell people the way I feel about things. And they can like it or they can lump it. They can accept it, but I'm going to say it anyway. And what you'll find 
is that though you're you're afraid that they will uh, react badly, they won't. Most of the time, they won't. Most of the time, they will accept you and your offering and what you give, and you will feel included, not excluded. So just work with that. And again, like I was telling Titi <coughs> about her boy, um, go slowly. You don't have to get all the way from, you know, from where you are to the end point overnight. Work on it. Work on being authentic. Just expressing yourself to people and let them deal with it. And learn something about them by how they deal with it. Don't always take everything personally. It's about them more than it is about you. And take the long view. Some people will be very friendly and like you. Some people are going to want to put you down just to make themselves feel better. Some people will do whatever they do. And that's all right. A lot of people are different. Hang out with the ones that are nice people and stop hanging out with the ones that aren't so nice. Put your attention elsewhere. Now, some of us, those people that aren't so nice, happen to be members of our family. And we can't just walk away. You know, sometimes that's the case. But you can minimize that interaction. You can just minimize and realize it's about them, not about you. So it's important that you don't feel negative about yourself. And you should work on that um, slowly, but continually by showing yourself who you are, speaking up, engaging. Tell people how you feel. If they say things that, that make you feel bad, tell them. This is how I feel when you say that. Not an argument, not a justification, not an explanation, just telling them a fact. This is how I feel. Good people will respond to that in a good way. People who also who are arrogant and self-centered will respond to that by pushing at you harder. Just ignore it. Ignore it and go on. That's them, not you. Don't let it tear your self-esteem down. I know it's so much easier for me to say than than to do. For you to do, but work on it a little bit at a time. Keep the, keep your intent pushing on that and it'll come. Thank you very much, Tom. Very helpful. All right, Tom. Our next question comes from Abdul. He's on the audio section. Go ahead, please, Abdul. Hello, everyone. Hi, Tom. Hello. All right. So I, I'm assuming you can hear me fine. I hear you fine. Awesome. So my question number one is, sir, um, some people are unable to put on weight and remain weak and fragile. Things such as eating junk food does not help either. You have talked about the right diet, and I found that very helpful when it comes to losing weight. But what about its opposite case? Why are some people underweight even when their diet is good and full of junk food? And uh, what can they do to fix it? Is there a consciousness related reason behind a super fast metabolism? Okay, now, some people would think that it's hard to be underweight. 
that's a difficult position to be in. But if the, if the underweight is a problem, like you said, you said like being fragile, being low energy, unable to, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of vitality, you don't have a lot of robustness, then it is a problem. And the problem may come from something other than just diet or being low weight. The low weight may just be a symptom. Uh, you know, that'd be something that you'd have to think about, whether the low weight was a, was a symptom of something else uh, or whether it was the cause. Is it the cause of the fragility or is it um, just a symptom of, of some other dysfunction? So that I, that I don't know. I guess that's, that the person would have to answer that question themselves. But let's say that, that uh, just not eating so much is the cause of being fragile and not being robust. Then I think you should probably start spending a little more time with the process of eating, a little more time with the preparation, a little more time with the, uh, the idea of, of, of eating instead of just going out to eat or just eating whatever's simple and easy. You know, it's time to eat. I'll cry. I'll open a can of tuna fish and eat that, you know, and that's it. That'll be my dinner is a can of tuna fish. Well, that's being really lazy because it's just easy. And sometimes people end up underweight and eating not so well just because they don't want to go through the process of preparation. Well, if you care about a healthy diet and you care about getting a balanced diet, then you may need to to uh, think about the preparation. Take some time for it. Don't see don't see eating entirely as something that you uh, do just because you have to. You know, there I've I've heard it said that there are two kinds of people: people who um, live to eat and people who eat to live. And if you're one of those people that eat to live, then a can of tuna fish sounds like dinner because that will keep you alive and, and you really have very little interest in food other than the fact that you need to eat it from time to time. Otherwise, you know, you'll get weak and shaky and not be robust, but it's hard to put the energy into actually getting a good meal. That probably speaks of, of, um, some dysfunction that's probably at a little deeper level where you don't really see yourself and your life and your interactions and your vitality is very important where you feel kind of like a very small insignificant person and a can of tuna fish is good for somebody that's small and insignificant and doesn't matter you know so it may come from a lack of self-esteem or a, or a lack of feeling uh, va- valued or valuable what I'm saying is there may be some other issue going on besides just the food. There may be something else there that is part of the problem that makes you uh, eat in a way that you would be seriously underweight to the point that you're fragile and not robust. So in that case, put some time toward the eating process. It's not just eat to live. You do have to eat to live, but there's more to it than that. There is something uh, 
bigger and broader and more significant to eating than just getting enough calories to survive on. Eating is often a social thing. People who live by themselves often will get into this thing of, you know, a can of tuna fish for dinner is enough. They won't eat any more than that. They'll just do with, you know, cereal for breakfast, you know, because that's easy. You pour stuff out of a box and you pour some liquid in and then something out of a can. And they get to the point that it's almost like a, a mild depression. It's just not worth the trouble. Well, that's something that you should change. It should be worth the trouble. You should eat well. The foods you, you eat should be interesting. It should be nourishing and you should have some part in it in the sense if you have to prepare it, if you have to do something, you know, to make it happen and do it and do it well. And there should be some uh, sense of a job well done when you create something that's healthy and good to eat. Now, the other thing you should do is if you're feeling kind of weak and not robust, you ought to start exercise. You need to start doing something that demands robustness and health. You need to start first going on fast walks and then maybe starting to run or jog as you build up some stamina. Start out slowly, but use your body. The body gets into a kind of a listless, um, I don't know, you just don't care kind of a thing when you don't use it. It's just it's like a like a machine you never use. It starts to deteriorate, and the idea of going out and running or exercising says, "Wow, that's way too much trouble. That's almost as trouble as cooking a nice dinner." <laughs> Everything in life seems to be too much trouble, so you just don't seem to do much or be much. You're just getting along and hanging in there. Sub subclinical depression would be, you know, what I would call that. You're not vibrant. You're not connecting. You're not interacting with other people. You need to go find some social things, things to do, people to do things with, make connections, go running with the guy next door who goes out, you know, and maybe you can't keep up with him except the first block, but eventually you'll be able to keep up with him the whole way. You know, go do stuff and get yourself motivated to lead an active, social, full life, which includes eating well-prepared meals. And even if that means going to a restaurant that actually makes well-prepared meals instead of, you know, know, fast food kind of stuff, then you need to do that. And as you do that, you'll start taking more interest in those things. You'll take more interest in what you eat. You'll take more interest in exercise and the things you need to do and the fitness of your body and don't go to the other extreme you know you can you can go to the exact other extreme and it's just as bad for you and that is that you know you live to eat it's all about eating you know food is is the primary thing in your life and exercise is a primary thing in your life and you run 10 miles every day and you know you can become obsessed with a healthy lifestyle to the point that you squeeze everything meaningful out of your life because you're so obsessed with with uh, your your exercise and your food and other kinds of things. 
you're meant to be a social creature. You're meant to have interaction with other people. And you should feel robust physically, mentally, and emotionally. It sounds like somebody's dropping into a subclinical depression that just doesn't care that much. Well, I'd say you're probably unbalanced if you just don't care so much. You're spending too much time alone and not enough time interacting. People are not significant enough in your life. Go find some significant people and make them a part of your life. It may be, it may take you a year or two to find people who are significant, but you'll, you will run into them if you go out and, and mingle some and meet people. Make your life, give, make a, make your life richer and more full of interesting things, interesting meals, try new kinds of foods, different ethnicity foods, different kinds of cuisine, you know. Just find that interesting. Find interest in life. So that would be my suggestion. And I, I don't know whether any of the things I'm telling you are actually things that, that uh, you know, are helpful or not. But uh, in general, what you what you sound like, somebody that's just kind of wasting away and not doing much and isn't robust and doesn't eat, they're just not engaged. They're kind of standing on the sideline watching life go by. And even if you're meditating 10 hours a day, that's out of balance. You have the rest of your life is also important. Go out and interact with those people, those people who will step on your toes and, and elbow you and, and uh, give you lots of opportunities to make good choices, lots of challenges. Those are good. We need those challenges. Yeah, thank you. That was helpful. And um, I do have another question as well. Um, so this is dealing with embarrassing moments from your past. Um, I am thinking high school here. Um, I guess I was a pushover, but I did get myself stuck in a couple of embarrassing moments, which still occasionally haunt me to this day. Feelings like, how did I let that person treat me like that? I should have been braver in the moment and stood up for myself. How can I overcome this so that it does not haunt me anymore? You overcome it by letting it go. You let it go by looking at it and realizing that that's just the way I was with emphasis on the was. Okay. You are right now the sum total of all the choices that you've ever made. That's what brings you to this point. All those choices that you made brought you here. Okay. So whatever it was that you did, it was part of your process of growing up. It's part of the choices you made. Now, when you make choices, you you should be able to benefit from those choices, both at the time you make them and years later. If you make a choice and you try to make the best choice at the time, well, in that moment of making the choice, okay, you will immediately get a, you know, that was a good choice or a bad choice. You know, if you let people treat you badly, then the, the, that turns out badly because then you get treated very badly because you let that happen. So you kind of get immediate feedback. But on the other hand, we learn from our mistakes. That's what life is all about. We make mistakes and we learn from them. Nobody goes through life making perfect choices from the day they were born. You know, it doesn't work that way. People make mistakes. People make poor choices. Matter of fact, the average person makes a lot more poor choices than they make 
really good choices. They probably make 10 or 20 or 100 poor choices for every good choice they make. That's just kind of typical. That's life. The point is, we get to learn from them. We get to change who we are based on those poor choices. So you go back in your life and you say, oh, that was not a good choice. There's a whole series of probably poor choices that led up to that particular poor choice. My guess was that poor choice just wasn't a a one-off that just happened to happen on that one day. There were probably lots of choices, that poor choices that led up to that particular poor choice that uh, now embarrasses you. So you look at it and say, well, that's my learning process. I didn't learn, I did this, and I didn't learn, and I didn't learn, and it kept getting worse and worse, and the results kept getting, you know, I kept getting pushed around more and more, and eventually, you know, I figured it out. I learned that. Okay, so now you have that, you've grown some from it, and you can go look at it and see, well, how could I have done that better? Well, maybe the first 20 times I made that poor choice before I got to the 100th time when it was really embarrassing. Maybe I should have caught it then and said, you know, this is not working out. I need to make a change now before it gets so bad that I'm going to be embarrassed about it later. You see, and now, well, how does that thought apply to the rest of my life? What am I doing right now that are poor choices that, you know, may lead to another embarrassing choice, you know, five years from now? What do I need to What are my poor choices now that are dysfunctional, that makes life difficult? Because all the poor choices that led up to that embarrassing poor choice were things that probably made your life a little less pleasant, but you accepted it anyway. Well, it's unpleasant, but it's not that bad. I, I accepted it. I dealt with it. I rolled with the punch, whatever. But there was a problem there, which was the problem of of uh, maybe being too passive in in that situation. So now, what about now? Is there anything you're doing now that uh, is the same thing and you don't want to wait till it gets to the point that it's embarrassing that you should work on? You see, so we learn from our mistakes. Even decades later, we can go back and look at our bad choices we made. And usually they're not single one-offs. They're usually a whole attitudinal set that leads to that bad choice. And, And look now and see what can we learn from that even decades later. What's the lesson in there? How could I have done that better? How could I have seen that coming? And what am I in now that I need to see something coming that hasn't, you know, that I'm not that aware of yet? So that's the way life works. We have stuff happens, we make choices, and then we learn from those choices. That's just the nature of life. So the fact that you have made mistakes, even embarrassing mistakes, is nothing different than anybody else. It's just the way it is. Everybody makes poor choices in their life. We tend to make a whole lot of them when we're younger. We tend to get a little better at making good choices as we get older. But that's not necessarily always true, but uh, that tends to be mostly true. So... Realize that every choice you made has led up to you being who you are now. And who you are now has a lot of potential. Has a lot of potential because of the things you have learned, the things that you see on your plate, the the places you know of that you're headed toward, how you're going to be in the future. 
you got all this potential and you're there because of all the things you've done, all the lessons you've had along the way. So don't look at these things as a negative. Oh, how could I have done that? I'm so embarrassed. But say, well, that was me. I did that because I had lessons to learn. And that lesson kept getting harder and harder until it got to the point that it was embarrassing and finally caught my attention and it helped me change. Ah, It was a good thing. That needed to happen. That needed to happen that way. Otherwise, I'd still be on that same path of making those same bad choices. So you realize that most of those things that you find embarrassing are usually things where there was a turning point and you grew from them because it finally got bad enough to get your attention that something needed to change. So you might look at those things and say, wow, I look at those and I, instead of being embarrassed, you should say, I'm really, I'm really glad that I finally did get it in those instances and that they did help me make changes in my life. They showed me where it is I didn't want to be. They showed me things that weren't functional. And I needed that. And sometimes you need to be hit between the eyes by a two-by-four to get your attention that something's dysfunctional. You just excuse it and pass it off and live with it until it's so bad that it's embarrassing. But it takes that much to get your attention to do something about it. So most of those are like turning points. Not always. But my what I'm saying is that in general, don't look back at the past and feel embarrassed or feel that you've done something horrible. Feel good that you've learned something from it. You've grown up. You've seen the error. You're now doing it better. And you're one more step toward that positive evolution of your consciousness. And that it's all the sum total of who you are now. And then look at the potential of where you can take it now because of what you know and what you've learned and what you understand. You see, the future has lots of potential. And all you have to do is just keep learning those lessons. And the more you learn lessons, the easier it is to learn the next lessons. The lessons just, the lessons get harder, but your ability to deal with them gets easier and easier as time goes on. So look at it as a process, a process that's been working. All right, some embarrassing moments that you've made some really horrible choices, but that's part of the growing process. Accept it and go on. You know, you still don't have to go out and, you know, write a story about it or, you know, tell everyone. It can still just be your own secret of bad choices you made. You don't have to go out and and make it public. You could if you wanted to make sure that it no longer was a secret that haunted you. You could just make it public and then at least it's no longer a secret and you will have kind of dealt with it, you know, out in public. Sometimes people do that. You know, they have to, they have to tell people and then get the reaction and admit it and go on. Whereas if they don't tell anybody, it's kind of the secret that they, it's always a secret to them, but. It's not necessary to tell anybody. It's just necessary for you to accept it as part of the growth path you were on that brought you now to this wonderful potential where you are now. Awesome. Thank you. That is is really helpful. Thanks. Thank you, Abdul. Uh, Next, we'll have Carolyn, please. Go ahead. Hello, Tom. Can you talk about how your sense of identity has changed or shifted during your process of spiritual evolution in this lifetime? 
was there like a specific point at which your sense of identity shifted out of being a human being called Tom and into being um, consciousness itself? Like to what extent do you still identify with being a human being? See, that's a hard question. <laughs> identify with being a human being. Well, I'm perfectly aware that I'm an individuated unit of consciousness and that I'm operating this avatar and this avatar in this particular virtual reality is called a human being. Okay, so that uh, is knowledge I have. And I am glad to be here and be this human being, you know, as, as a consciousness. Because being this human being gives me challenges and opportunities that I wouldn't have if I wasn't here. So being the human being, I see, is a really good thing because it makes me interactive with other people. And as I interact with other people, I have two big opportunities that are important. One is I get to be helpful if I can be helpful. And two, I get to learn things and make choices, and try to make good choices. So they try to make the best possible choice. So being human is something I'm aware of, something that I'm I'm happy with and pleased with, and don't have anything, oh, no, I'm stuck down here with one of these humans, you know, sort of like being in the zoo. You know, people come by and, you know, throw peanuts in my, between the bars for me to eat. You know, I don't feel like that at all. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a consciousness. So I don't really say I'm a human. I'm not a human. I'm playing a human in a VR. And my human is just fine. My human gets interactions and, you know, has difficult choices and, you know, has to go take out the garbage and do all sorts of other things that humans have to do. And all of it is good. All of it is part of a very happy and joyful life for the most part. Uh, things are really, uh, really very, very good being this human Tom Campbell. So there is no, there, there is no problem with that. People, I think, sometimes feel like they're tired of being humans, that this human thing is such a drag and there's so many annoying people in the world and it's uh, so, you know, so much pettiness and small things that really don't matter and they wish they weren't here because they feel kind of trapped in a world of of petty illusion but you're not really trapped in in petty illusion that's just the way you interpret the reality that you're in that's your interpretation of the reality so you can look at people and say, wow, those people are all really petty and they don't, you know, they got a low quality of consciousness. They're full of ego and wow, you know, look at all these people. They're just not much fun. You know, I don't want to be here with these humans. You can say that, but that's your interpretation. You're looking at everything negative. You're looking at all the stuff that, that is negative. You're not looking at it. What's positive. Oh, look at all these humans. Look at all the potential they have. The way they could grow, what they could become. Can you imagine this place if everybody had a very, you know, high quality of consciousness? Wouldn't that be awesome? But everybody has to grow in their own path, in their own way, and change themselves. So how can I be a part of that? You see, and then it's very positive being here. 
So you look at it from the perspective of it being a positive, fun, neat thing to be and to do and a good place to be. And don't look at and dwell on all the negatives that you can, you know, that you can find in it. Because there's lots of negatives you can find, but there's lots of positives you can find too. So as far as my own development goes and, and being consciousness as well as having this avatar, that boundary has pretty much blurred to the point that I don't see that as two separate things. I don't see me, the consciousness, the IOC that, you know, can fly around out of body and do this and that and sit down, you know, and have a chat with the larger conscious system. And, you know, I don't, I don't see all that as a separate thing to what I am physically with the, with the avatar. So that's all kind of blended together to where I do live in a multi-dimensional reality kind of all the time. And I don't see it in terms of this reality and that reality. The whole thing blurs into just one bigger reality that has more choices and more things going on in it. So in that sense, I'm probably somewhat unique than the average, you know, different than the average uh, person in that it's, it's not, now I'm interacting as consciousness and here I'm interacting as, as, a, as an avatar. I kind of interact as a avatar that's perfectly aware that I'm also consciousness. And I can do both of those at the same time, interacting just whenever, you know, like I said that the, eventually your, your, uh, intellect and your intuitive part, it's not one or the other. It's just both of them do whatever they, you know, they work together like a team. Well, it's sort of like that with the, with your consciousness, you and your avatar, your, you know, your IOC, your avatar, it all working together as a team, larger conscious systems on your team too, you know? So when you kind of have that team mentality, then you're not just an avatar and you're not just an IOC, you're something else. You're a part of a larger thing that's got purpose and making progress. So that's a little different, I guess, to, come up with something that was different. But to what extent are you still driven by your human instincts? Well, I don't know that I'm driven by them as much as I accept them. You know, being driven kind of sounds like you're out of control. You're being driven. Somebody else is driving you. And I have instincts because I'm an avatar, this human animal, and this human animal, like all the other animals, have instincts. And I accept those instincts, and I'm very careful not to get crosswise with those instincts. In other words, I, I don't want to, I don't want to try to be in ways that are a contradiction to my instincts. I have to work with them. I don't have to be driven by them. I don't have to be a slave to them, but I have to be aware of them and I have to accept them and I have to give what I can give to them. In other words, you have instincts that are around procreation and survival, right? Those are the two criteria in our virtual reality that, that, uh, are key for evolution. That's survivability and procreation. So that's, you know, that's, sex and staying alive. Those two things are important things to do. And you don't want to get to the point that you deny that you have those 
and you don't want to get to the point where you're doing things that are that are kind of against those instincts because when you force yourself to go against your instincts you're going to force yourself into being neurotic your your avatar has instincts to do things and if you push yourselves to do things that are contrary to those instincts you're just going to cause havoc in your avatar your avatar is designed to you know to instinctually your biochemistry instinctually it does these things we call instincts it's not a choice your instincts aren't something you've decided is a good thing to do or not a good thing to do it's just the way you are in this avatar so you might as well accept that and go along with it as much as you can but where those instincts are something you can't go along with well you don't have to be driven by them you can say well okay i can accept this this and this but that needs to change a bit that's a place that i don't want to go but i can't make that all of my instincts if i say okay i don't have anything at all to do with sexuality that's an instinct i don't care anything about survival you know i don't care if they survive or don't if you have if you do that you will end up causing yourselves more trouble because your avatar and the rule set is pushing one way and you're pushing in the opposite direction your avatar is going to get annoyed with you in that sense your biochemistry is going to be messed up you're going to have you know your hormones and other things that affect your mood and other things they're going to start to change you're going to create havoc in your body and you're going to create havoc in your psychology because that your psychology is involved in your instincts as well so you have to say yes i'm a sexual being okay that's part of life as a human so you need to be a sexual being you need to be a a fully and complete sexual being cuz that's being human but that doesn't mean that you don't have any choices left after that there's still ways that you can be a sexual being and still be say ethical or nice to people and not use people you know you can you can you can modify it but if you try to get rid of it or deny it it's just going to make you neurotic it's going to affect your psychology and it's going to affect your body and your physiology it's just not good avatars are made to do that so you need to do that too along with your avatar and do that uh, you know very gracefully but if it puts you in a place that you think is unethical or not a good thing or a high entropy thing well then you can take your intellect and override it and say no yeah okay i'm a sexual being but this is inappropriate You know, this is not a good idea. This is hurtful. This is a problem. So just because I'm a sexual being, I'm not going to do this because that would be an inappropriate, unethical thing to do. But now over here, are ethical things I could do. There's nothing wrong. You know, there's no no hurt, no high entropy. You're not hurting anybody on this other side. Then I can let my sexual being just run wild, if you will, just be because that's the way it's supposed to be. you see but there's other things that I won't let it run wild because it's inappropriate it's not nice it's hurtful it's going to hurt somebody else so that's what i mean by you can't get crosswise with it which just means you can't deny it you can't control it completely but you can modify what you do with it 
So people get into trouble when they deny that they have a sexual part, you know. Sex is bad. Sex is evil. I don't have any sex. Sex is not a good thing to do. Sex is scary. Sex will get you in trouble, and it's all negative. And they go through life trying pretty much to be as sexless as possible. And what that does is make you neurotic because that's not the way humans work. It'll make you angry, get you upset, make you judgmental. Puff up your ego. You know, there's a lot of negative things will come out of that sort of an attitude that's contrary to the nature of the avatar that you're in. And same with the survival thing. You know, you, uh, you should have a, some instincts to survive because you would like to keep on being part of the solution rather than not being here and not being part of the solution. We need people to be part of the solution here. There's so many people that are part of the problem. We need as many people as possible to be part of the solution. So having an attitude, uh, you don't care whether you're here or not, is really not helpful. You need to be here, and you need to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And you need to have fun while you're being part of the solution. You need to enjoy people. Enjoy yourself. Yeah. Life is about having fun, finding joy. Thank you very much. And then I have like a second question of um, if you could give me uh, an advice or if it would be possible to heal like a person with a delayed sleep phase disorder. It's um, a chronic dysregulation of a person's circadian rhythm, like the biolog biological clock. And um, compared to those of the general population and societal norms, the disorder affects the timing of sleep, peak period of alertness, the core body temperature, the rhythm, and the hormonal or other daily cycles. Uh, cycles. And the people with DP DSPD generally fall asleep some hours um, after midnight, fall asleep um, more difficult and have difficulty waking up in the morning so it's like basically affecting their whole life so it's like wondering like what would you do to help a person like that well it kind of depends on why that person's like that you know how did they get into that position Let's say that they just got there because not from any dysfunction, not from being, you know, um, uh, depressed. They're not trying to avoid people. You know, you don't have any of those kind of negative things. It's just their biology seems to be a little off from everybody else. I would say, one, if it's not a big problem for them, then they shouldn't worry about it too much. In other words, if you find that uh, you want to sleep during the day and uh, stay awake at night, then go get a job on the night shift. They actually, night shift jobs pay more <laughs> for doing the same work because it's hard to find people that don't want to do them, you know. In other words, like take Bob Monroe. Now, Bob Monroe... When I knew him, he was about 50, up 50 in the 60s, going toward late 60s and 70s. But Bob would sleep 
and not sleep off and on all day. He didn't have really an awake time and a sleep time. He would sleep for two or three hours and then get up and interact for three or four, five hours, go to sleep for two or three hours and get up and interact. And you'd find him bright eyed and bushy tailed at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, you might find him taking a nap at two o'clock in the afternoon. You know, he didn't have a regular, you know, you're awake and you wake up in the morning, you know, you do your, your work at day and then you go to sleep at night. He did not do that. His day and night and work time and rest time were all just kind of broken up into, into bits. So his, his awake time generally didn't last more than four or five hours. His sleep time didn't last much more than that either. And he, uh, slept when he was tired and worked when he, when he wasn't. And because he was retired and because his family could deal with that just fine, then it was okay. He just lived that way and, and it wasn't a problem. But if you are that way and you, you know, have a job and you have to be at that job at eight o'clock in the morning and you have to get up at six in order to be there by eight and your body just won't, you know, just doesn't want to get out of bed at that time. And then you have a hard time going to bed when it's 11 or 12 or one o'clock. You still want to stay up and do things, but then you can't get up in the morning. Then well, life is going to be a little harder for you. You're going to have to set an alarm that's real loud that you have to actually get out of your bed to turn off. You're going to have to do some things like that that, uh, you know, that make sure that you get up. You're going to have to have some self-discipline to stagger through the first three or four hours of your day before you begin to wake up and function. And that's just going to be your life. Now that sort of describes my life, the one I just went through. I was like that, you know, I, t- I tend to have student hours, you know, and left alone, if I have nothing to do, had no responsibilities anywhere, I would tend to stay up late and sleep late. And when I was working, I would have, you know, alarm would go off and uh, that alarm would go off at six or seven or whatever it was I needed to get up to be at work by eight. I'd get to work and basically puttered around doing kind of clean up and, you know, not much of anything. I didn't get it all that productive until at least 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And then there was a lunch break. And then in the afternoons, I started picking up steam. And at about 5 o'clock in the evening, everybody else went home. I was going great. I was really full steam ahead. And I usually worked then until 6 or 7 o'clock at night. Sometimes eight o'clock at night is when I was ready then to go home. And that just worked better for me. And I happened to work in a job where I did techie, techie stuff. And when you do techie stuff, generally people leave you alone because you're the only one that really understands what it is you're doing. You know, it's, it's techie enough that you kind of, they give you your job, send you off someplace alone, and then you come back when you have it done sort of a job. I could do that. So now the perfect job for me would have started at 10 o'clock in the morning, maybe, or 1030. And I would have been there and piddled around till lunch and then had lunch. And then I, my day would actually start working. And I'd probably work until eight o'clock at night. You know, that's just naturally the way my body rhythms work. Other people, their eyes will pop open, you know, as soon as daylight hits, 
you know, sun just barely shines over the horizon and their eyes pop open and they're bright eyed and bushy tailed and ready to go work the day. And by eight o'clock at night, they're done. You know, they need to go to bed. I'm not like that. I'm just the opposite. You know, I wake up late and would tend to work late and stay up late. So there's all sorts of different kinds of people. And if you can somehow just work that into your life, then that's probably the best solution. If you can't work it into your life and it's just really, really hard, then you should probably use very loud alarm clocks that are set, you know, uh, far enough away that you can't turn them off while you're still in bed and start developing enough discipline to force yourself to work on a schedule that's not really innate to you and do the best you can. I don't know. You have to go to some of the sleep, sleep and dream lab people and see what, if they have some kind of a, a remedy for getting you to, to, uh, sleep and be awake normal hours. But I think anything is okay as long as you have a lifestyle that supports it. The only problem with it is if you can't find a lifestyle that supports it. You know, so if you get up late and you need a job that starts late, or a job that doesn't really care how many hours you work as long as you hand in a you know a product at the end of the month that they're happy with and then it doesn't matter if you if you did that whole product in 1 hour and you handed it in a month later they'd be just as happy if you worked you know 60 hour weeks and handed it in a month later they don't really care as long as they get their product and it's a good product and it's on time in which case, then your schedule is irrelevant. You can do whatever you want. So try to fit you, it into your life. But what if you want to fix it? Is that like, can you heal it with your intent? Is that like a normal sickness you well, can just heal? I think you can try to get adjusted to another time. I think if you, let's say you want to get up at six, be at work at eight every morning because you got that kind of a job and you're not that kind of a person. I was in that thing you know i was in that spot sometimes i had bosses that wanted to see my body at work you know at 8 a.m or earlier every day and uh, i have other times i had bosses that didn't even care if i came to work as long as i produced the product so i've been in both situations and where i had to produce my body on time i just did it i forced myself to do it and eventually it becomes easier and easier you just, you know, your body will adjust to that. If you force your body into that schedule, your body will adapt to it somewhat. I never adapted to it completely to where, oh, I get up at six o'clock just fine and I'm ready to go. It's never like that, but I could force myself to do it to the point that forcing myself was just another day and I didn't really see it as a big deal. I just get up and stagger through life for the first few hours of my day and and uh, i'd have breakfast at lunchtime so if you want to change it just change it force the change and keep doing it until you get as used to it as you can get used to it you might try some some uh you know there's some little drugs you can take um they give them to people who are doing long flights sometimes that will tell your body that it's, what is it, melatonin, I think is one of the chemicals that your brain has that tells your brain to relax and go to sleep. And uh, you can do that to help you sleep. But I wouldn't suggest 
doing anything that isn't natural. Sleeping remedies that are unnatural generally have bad side effects. Waking up doesn't need a drug. All it needs is a loud enough noise. Okay, thank you very much.